2: Hello and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast, coming to you from REACH, the people behind the Liverpool Echo, Hull Daily Mail and Lancashire Live. If you want to know what's going on in Northern politics from a Northern perspective and outside the Westminster bubble, you're in the right place. I'm Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, bringing you another episode of analysis and political commentary from the North. Later in this week's episode, I'll be talking to the Yorkshire author of a new book who argues that for the North to succeed, it needs to be saved from London. Sam Bright, who grew up in Huddersfield but now lives in the capital, says dramatic measures are needed if the country is to bridge the gap between our biggest city and the rest of the country.
1: The government has, you know, deployed a lot of fancy words in, you know, typical Boris Johnson fashion to this mission, but actually in terms of substance, I say it falls, I would say it falls substantially short. One thing that really struck me was reporting from the northern powerhouse partnership that pointed out that in actual fact based on the government's plans Boris Johnson plans on spending less on regional uh, english regional development than Theresa May or David Cameron so he's actually going, he's actually going backwards compared to previous administrations when what we need is a massive surge um, in investment to make this work
2: but our main guest today is someone also no stranger to splitting her time between West Yorkshire and the capital as the ex-member of parliament for Batley and Spen. But since last May, Tracy Braben has had an entirely new role as a Metro Mayor, the first woman to hold such a position in this country after being elected by West Yorkshire's two million plus population. Metro mayors, in case you don't know, hold powers over planning, regional transport, the provision of skills training, business support services and economic development. They're supposed to be at the centre of the government's efforts to boost the economic prospects of areas outside London. But do they have the clout required, financial and otherwise, to do that? Let's ask Tracy Rabin, who is this week marking her first year in the job. Tracy, welcome.
0: Oh, thanks so much. It's great to be here.
2: It's nice to have you on. So you've been a year in the job this week. Maybe you can just start off by telling me, what have you learned in this first year about the opportunities... That being a mayor gives you and the things that you know maybe at the opposite end of the spectrum that you'd like to be able to do but haven't been able to so far?
0: Well certainly being a mayor is one of the best jobs in politics that's definitely something that I've learned and doing just an assessment of what we've achieved in a year as five years in uh, as a backbench um, MP four of those years spent in uh, on the front bench which was you know great experience and fabulous but I really barely got much done to change the lives of the people I represented. Of course, you're part of a machine to hold the government to account, and that's your role. But as the mayor, there are levers of power and you do have budgets. Um, And so, for example, being able to um, uh, allocate 63 million for adult education budget and being able to make the decision that those who are on the real living wage as opposed to their living wage can access um, free education, you know, level three, Uh, being able to bid to government. And we've got 900 million to spend on transport, 70 million of which is for buses we've just had a, a big announcement today that maybe I'll talk about later. But there, there is a real opportunity to make a difference on the ground for the people that you represent and to change people's lives directly um, and to understand the challenges more, more closely. Because I, uh, you know, I'm not commuting. I'm living in Yorkshire. I'm, I'm traveling on the bus. I'm traveling on the train. I see the challenges every day. So it is an amazing job. But like you say, the um, the government have negotiated these devolution deals with various mayors across the country. I have responsibilities for police and crime in the same way Andy Burnham does, but I don't have responsibilities for health, um, say. But there are there's definitely things that we could go further with, and I've spoken to government ministers about this. Uh, you know, going further on um, uh, power over skills. Because that's really one of the levelling up levers and also on the climate emergency. We know what we need to do. We can help government get to their targets and we can implement things on the ground. And talking to other mayors at a big conference at COP, where mayors from all over the world got together, um, one of the mayors was saying that mayors are the tugboats that push government into the right place. And I think that's definitely true when it comes to the climate emergency.
2: Hmm, That's an interesting uh, interesting metaphor, tugboats that pull the government into place. So you mentioned skills and how you'd like to take on more powers potentially there. You might have seen that Andy Burnham, who obviously is going to start talks with Michael Gove about a so-called trailblazer devolution deal, he would like to take control over the entire post-16 education system. You have control over the adult education budget, so a more limited form of control. I mean, would you like to Perhaps follow the example of Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester or, is, or or do you see something different in terms of skills that you'd like no, to do?
0: That, that definitely makes sense. And if you en- enable and empower people to get better jobs, there's more money in your economy um, and that's inclusive growth. So it's sensible and many occasions when the mayors get together in the M10, we do, you know, we discuss this. Um, It's certainly something I think that would be sensible for government to look at what's happening with the trailblazers, Andy Street in the West Midlands and Andy Burnham are leading. Um, But I think uh, there will be really positive outcomes, I should imagine, on the impact that's going to have. I can do only so much because I'm picking up people Um, you know, post-19. So there are interventions there that could have been um, brought forward and early interventions that would have meant that people aren't then struggling, for example, with digital skills. Um, It's frustrating that nearly 50% of um, the the public in West Yorkshire, they um, don't know how to set up, for example, an email account or CC in a colleague. Those basic digital skills that we could um, certainly, um, you know, start that work earlier. And and it it is about ambitions for people who are coming back to work or who have been made redundant. And it's not just for necessarily young people as well. So I think it's it's a good intervention. Andy and and um, um, but both Andys are going to be feeding back to us about what works and 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 how we can make that case but we still have even even though i don't have direct responsibilities we've been able to for example, allocate six million pounds for um, uh, skills boot camps um, for young entrepreneurs. Is another six million pound for uh, enterprise West Yorkshire. So we are doing our bit um, and running digital um, boot camps and so on to enable people in work to get the skills that move them on to the next promotion, so they can earn more money. Um, but uh, I think that's that's something that I would definitely look at if we had the opportunity.
2: So you mentioned buses. You have announced this week that passengers boarding any West Yorkshire bus from September would pay no more than two pounds a journey, which could make uh, each journey as much as 1 pound50 cheaper in some instances, and for longer day passes, it'd be even more of a saving. Obviously, I guess the end goal is a bus network that is so good that people, Choose to leave their cars at home and go on the bus instead. How much closer does what you're proposing now take us to that utopia?
0: We've turbocharged the the journey. Uh, I, I said when I first became mayor, I promised. The public that that I would work towards um, a more affordable, cleaner, and greener bus network, and cheaper fares were had to be a priority. We're obviously in a cost of living crisis, aren't we? Um, hopefully, this will help families, but also encourage those who don't normally use a bus to use a bus. But also, it's not just about fares. Whilst a two pound single ticket is going to hopefully get more people to use buses, it's also about those routes that have been cut. Um, by providers and uh, on on several occasions in this last year I've hauled bus company um, bosses to to meet with me to discuss the cuts that they're implementing um, I'm helping as as much as I can they told me that they were struggling to recruit drivers so we've uh, had a we funded a, a training scheme for bus drivers I I ran a, um, a campaign for 1,000 new drivers, particularly focused on women, getting women back into the workplace through driving buses. Um, they said they needed more security from government um, to uh, have that COVID recovery fund. I campaigned with the other mayors and we got another six months. But it's part of this enhanced partnership working with... Bus operators, we've been able to actually be really innovative and we've really pushed the boundaries of the enhanced partnership as far as it can go so that we can get cheaper fares because buses have to be exactly to your point the first choice rather than the last choice because you don't have a car. Now, in West Yorkshire, 72% of the population have a car, which is quite low. So there are so many people that rely on these buses that have had their service cut. So I'm also in parallel with reducing costs, um, making sure that we do as much as we can to reconnect those communities that have been isolated because of cuts to buses. It's important for our young people, it's important for workers, it's important for those who use buses on a number of journeys because they've got caring responsibilities, but it also it's important for our planet. And so we can help government reach their targets um, by these sorts of initiatives. But I'm really excited today because I think it will make a big impact and hopefully bring people back to using buses.
2: Now, for people listening who don't understand the intricacies of how the bus services work, obviously, you don't have full control or ownership over bus services, as is in the case in in London. In Greater Manchester, Andy Burnham, he is much further down the road of taking buses into public hands. So with these £2 fares, am I right in thinking you you don't have the power to force this through by yourself? You will need to negotiate with the bus operators and you'll need the Department for Transport to approve what you're doing i mean how easy will that will that be is that a straightforward process
0: well it's been um a partnership job and working with the boss operators to have those conversations about what's important and that we supported them during covid to the tune of tens of millions as did government and i think we all understand that in order for the boss network to survive we have to build patronage and we have to get more people back on the bus. But initiatives like last summer, I announced a young person's um, bus pass um, for uh, under-19s. And uh, we've got back young people to 100% back on the buses from pre-COVID numbers. Um, so that's really important. But to your point about um, the the process, we when I first became the mayor, we allocated a million pounds to investigate the process of public control. Now, I could have taken a decision not to go into an enhanced partnership, but just to focus on that public control element um, and franchising. But we were... um, stymied to some degree by government timetables. So it won't be until 2024 that we make the the ultimate decision about going to public control. But what I didn't want is to be in a position where I was on um, an intellectual position that meant we didn't improve bus services now today. So that's why the enhanced partnership really uh, was important. Um, for us to work with bus companies to make a difference now. So, uh, later in the year, we're going to also be announcing that tap in, tap out, that capped fare that you get in London. Um, so, we are Desperately trying and working flat you know really hard to make um, make it easier, cheaper and uh, more convenient for bus passengers to use it uh, really pleased that we got uh, I think it's one hundred and eleven electric buses in the uh, zebra bid. Um, obviously we need those green buses as well to help us reduce our um, emissions. Forty percent of all emissions in West Yorkshire are from transport. So it's a collective effort from drivers, but also our, our bus network. Um, we need to modernize that as well. And I'm really pleased that the bus companies are coming with us on that journey. They know they need to modernize and they need to be fit for purpose for the future. But it, we're not there yet, but I'm hoping that today's announcement, which is pretty bold, uh, a bold initiative, and um, hopefully will, will really help us get more people on the buses.
2: You're obviously responsible for economic growth as mayor, and I'm interested in in how you see the different parts of West Yorkshire working as the main engine of that. I think it's no secret that Leeds as a city is booming, uh, as in Manchester, but economies of the other parts of West Yorkshire are maybe not thriving to the same extent, and it's a similar dynamic in other parts of the, the north. Is it your view that the way to grow West Yorkshire's economy is to focus on Leeds and grow the Leeds economy and that growth of Leeds will be good for outlying areas, for Halifax and Bradford and Osset. Or do you need to spread the attention and the resources more evenly around West Yorkshire to have an overall sort of better effect?
0: I don't think it's either or because I think Leeds is the, you know, it's a jewel in our crown. There are, you, you just have to look at the, the businesses that have just moved here, Channel 4, um, but Channel 4 wouldn't have come here without Bradford. And it is that sort of symbiotic relationship between the regions that bring companies to Leeds. Uh, the Bank of England, the Infrastructure Bank, the Financial Services Authority, um, um, Fintech, healthtech they're coming to Leeds because they have the workforce, uh, but also they have the lifestyle. Um, and what's really important for me, and that's why I was so pleased to be part of the, um, the pitch to the adjudicators for uh, Bradford 2025, that all of our regions must flourish, but each of our regions... Have has different um, strengths. You know, we are at the heart of the north here in West Yorkshire, and collectively, we are like a mini UK. We have so much to offer, um, and our borders between our regions are porous. So people will live in Leeds and work in Bradford or um, live in um, Wakefield and then come into Leeds to work. So it is really important that Leeds flourishes. But we have so much opportunity in the regions to uh, really level up our own um, footprint so that we can um, celebrate all the really exciting stuff that each region really does lead on um, and certainly looking at Wakefield for example we've got the K- Kappa College which is our Brit school we've got the uh, culture with our sculpture park and the Hepworth we've got Tileyard North that have come from King's Cross come up to Wakefield you know we are celebrating each and every bit of um, Um, uh, success across the region, but that's why things that come from a strategic point of view, from, from my role. Uh, for example, the £20 million Accelerator Fund for SMEs, this is open to all businesses across West Yorkshire. Our inward investment programme for all uh, businesses, uh, our training and our skills for um, all businesses who you know, want to um, uh, avail themselves of it, it is there for everyone. But you know, Leeds is... Really powerful, exciting, dynamic city, and you know we we want to really uh, celebrate that. But there are other amazing um, uh, university towns as well, like Huddersfield and uh, Bradford, uh, the the best poster child for social mobility in any uh, academic institution in the country. So every region has its strengths, but of course Leeds uh, needs a particular. Um, voice as well within that, that you know within that uh, economic strategy.
2: Michael Gove obviously he is the man responsible for dictating what levelling up looks like to some extent and, and you know what powers mayors like yourself have. What What's your relationship like with Michael Gove? And I, I, I recall uh, the, there was a big convention of the north in February in Liverpool, and he promised, I think, that he would be spending a day up in West Yorkshire with you by the end of March. I mean, did that did that ever happen? Like, did do you speak to him on a regular basis?
0: Um, he, he didn't come. He, it, some of his colleagues did come, uh, but we're still trying to get that date in the diary. I think various, um, uh, things happening in government, whether that's safe big dog or whether that's Ukraine or the cost of living crisis maybe was a bit of, um, a distraction, but it's still, the commitment's still there. And to be honest, the, uh, I think all the mayors are in agreement that if, if, if leveling up is going to be anything, then Michael Gove can push it through. Um, and he is the man to do the job. But it can't just be about him. It has to be a whole government response. And uh, I, I do welcome in the Queen's speech and the levelling up bill that um, there is going to be the accountability from all of government to hit those targets of the 12 missions. You know, we are held, always held to account by government. And I think it's really important that Michael has obviously made that commitment um, uh, to government as well, that they need to all be, get on board because there is no point. Announcing initiatives if the Treasury don't understand how important it is um, to regions like ours. So it's a good relationship. Um, I'm now the chair of the M10, as you may know, and hopefully we're going to be building um, on, the, on on those sorts of connections. We've got Nadim Zahawi coming to talk to us about education next week. And um, hopefully then we will, um, Michael, and we've, we've reached out to the Prime Minister as well to come and speak to us. Because For me, this is not particularly politically partisan, this role. I'm here to serve the people of West Yorkshire and will support government hitting their targets. There's a lot of commonalities in those 12 missions and my 10 manifesto pledges. Um, I'm very happy to work with Michael uh, as closely as he would like in order to get things done. What is frustrating is the beauty contest where we're having to pitch continually to government for money and as you will have seen in South Yorkshire, we um, we bid for, uh, for a really transformative, ambitious programme for bosses. we got probably, you know, a third of what we bid for, but South Yorkshire got nothing. So the capacity that it takes to bid into these beauty contests, then not get anything um, is a distraction. So, I, you know, I, I'm really hopeful that we can start to speak to Treasury more regularly because... Um, it would make sense that, you know, Treasury give us the money and uh, we're having to navigate ministers who there's a churn and, um, you know, ministers have their own um, interests. So uh, I think a more, a closer relationship to government is going to help all the mayors, I think.
2: Now, the final question, Tracy. it's um, a relatively short term for you, I think, as mayor initially, as you're up for election again in 2024. Is that, is that right?
0: Am, yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, obviously, it might be around the time of the next general election, which could be interesting. Um, given the powers available to you, how much progress do you expect to be able to point to by 2024 for the people of West Yorkshire? I mean, things like bus franchising, more progress with a mass transit system. Are they realistic things to have made progress on by uh, in, in two years time?
0: Um, yes. And certainly that we've got the timeline that the decision to go to uh, bus franchising will be 2024 before the election. So I will have, I'll be at that point. Um, I hope we've gone further than we are today Uh, with that tap in, tap out. We'll have our green buses up and running. I'm hoping to build uh, capacity. Um, Definitely when it comes to mass transit, it won't be spades in the ground by 2024, no doubt about it. The 200 million that we've got it's a two billion pound project. Will get us through um, the consultation probably before twenty twenty four. So I'm hoping to be re-elected, and I've said to the team, I see everything as a seven year plan. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to take it for granted, but I'm hoping that we can get back into then, um, get into you know into actually delivering on mass transit. But I uh, already in our audit for a year, um, we're already quite substantially far ahead of where potentially we would have been. So, for example, the thousand um, green jobs for young people, where over 600 uh, jobs have been pledged. Um, the 5,000 affordable, sustainable homes. It looks like um, near 2,000. You know, 1,600. To, you know, we're we're unlocking land for developers through the Brownfield Fund. Um, I'm really excited about what we can deliver. My cultural New Deal. Um, uh, we've set up the uh, Culture Committee. We've got an indicative pot of 11 and a half million pounds. We're going to make really impactful changes in West Yorkshire, even in the next couple of years, because if this year is anything to go by, we're on fire as an organization. We've been waiting for this for far too long. And so there's an impatience to deliver. Um, I'm con- continually um, checking myself that you know, we're delivering for the public. Um, I'm pleased with where we are so far, but of course um, we could always go further. And I know that the next couple of years we will. It's, it is an exciting time for West Yorkshire. Of course, the cost of living crisis is going to be an added challenge for all of us when it comes to how transformational uh, these programmes are going to be. But I'm really hopeful that we can make palpable changes in people's lives whether that's enabling a young person to get to a college that they wanted to go to rather than their third choice because they couldn't get there because the buses didn't work whether that's somebody that started up a a business because of the enterprise west yorkshire um fund or whether that's somebody that's um got a green green job as a young person or you know there's so many things that we can we can do to impact on people's lives and just finally having spent a bit of time with um A mum whose house had been retrofitted as part of one of our programmes. And she was saying, it's not even about the fact that my energy bill is less, which is great. It's just family life is better because my kids can do their homework in their bedroom and they're not fighting in the kitchen all the time. These are small things in the scheme of things, you know, in the larger scheme of of mayoral ambitions. But making life easier for people of West Yorkshire, one community at a time, you know, is going to be a real target and something I hope I'll achieve.
2: Pretty Rabin, thank you very much. Considering London is, obviously, not in the North, it's notable how much time people invested in the future of our region spend discussing the capital and its influence on our collective fortunes. Like it or not, regional inequalities and the so-called North-South divide can't ever be explained without first understanding the wealth and power concentrated in London. But is it the case that political leaders in Northern England are always destined to be looking enviously at the wealth and power in our biggest city? Or is there a way forward that would allow places outside the South East to thrive without penalising the part of the country that has in recent years been the driving force behind our economy? In his new book, Fortress London, investigative journalist Sam Bright, who is originally from Huddersfield and now lives in London, explores why London is one of the main blockades to social mobility in modern Britain. He argues that to address Britain's manifold problems, we need first to end the dominance of the capital. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Sam to the podcast. Sam, welcome. Thanks, Rob. Good to be here. With your story, being someone who is originally from Huddersfield and went down to London and is now looking at the, you know, why London is so dominant, it's kind of the opposite of uh, what I did. I, I was working in London for the Evening Standard until a few years ago, and then I came up north and I've been a journalist in the north of England for the last 10 years which I suspect is the opposite way around to how most people do it but I guess your personal experience is a large reason behind why you embarked on this book. I mean can you explain the central premise behind it and what prompted you
1: to to write it in the first place? For sure I mean in essence yes is the answer to your to your uh, basic question that uh, it, it was through what I'd experienced, particularly in terms of my career, and anyone who's lived in London will know housing choices um, down here, that I just began to reflect on these big divisions between London and the rest of the country. You know, I was in my mid twenties, and um, you know, I was doing a job working in Westminster that that I enjoyed, but just struggling to pay my way. Um, in this vast capital and saw lots of people um, lots of my peers who did live here seemingly able to sort of guide through life in a way that I, I didn't think that I could um, perhaps because, you know, either that they'd had a lot more experience in, in London, so they could choose the pockets of the city to live. They, they knew the ins and outs and how to get affordable rent. If there is such a thing in the city. Um, but also lots of people who simply took the decision, which I thought is entirely rational. I still think it's entirely rational to live at home. I mean, I know plenty of people, plenty of journalists in their early 30s. And, um, you know, I'm sure they experienced personal problems because of this. Um, but, they, you know, they still live at home at, at that age simply because it's not viable for them to to move out. Um, and yeah, I just saw that con- contrast and thought, wow, um, you know when you then go on the jobs boards when you click on Indeed and you search for the latest media openings in other parts of the country, and I'm sure this is true for other professions as well. in fact, I know it is um you just don't see the available opportunities, and so you're stuck in this catch twenty two where you're looking on right move on the one hand and you're seeing massive massive um you know massive rent prices and then you're you're checking indeed on the other hand and you're seeing no job opportunities anywhere that you can afford um, and you know i think it would have been quite easy for me to write a hackneyed book about the north-south divide as um you know and i think the north-south divide as a, as a concept does have a lot of merit but i think increasingly um, on the back of doing the research i saw that plenty of other parts of the country and country outside of london um, have similar problems. Um, you know, the Southwest has shares a great many problems with the North as well. And so, th- this for me was the the formative inequality in the country um, that hasn't been talked about in recent years.
2: I don't think anyone would deny that regional inequalities exist. But there's a really interesting quote in the uh, one of the opening chapters of your book that says, "I believe regional inequalities are sustained by two behaviours that are prevalent in the capital." a failure to acknowledge the destructive effects of London supremacy and an instinctive, almost involuntary assumption that places outside the capital are populated by xenophobes. So can can you elaborate a bit on that? These are the two sort of things
1: that are allowing the regional inequalities to, to persist in your, in your view. From an individual point of view, so from not a structural point of view, not in terms of what the government could be doing, what, you know, what the institutions of power, what the media could be doing, etc. But in terms of sort of the individual and how the individual in London talks about regional inequalities, yes, certainly, and I think this is why the conversation simply isn't held in the first place. And when it is, people in London are very defensive about the capital, because I think, unfortunately, they've swallowed the guff of um, the right-wing culture warriors Who've led the sort of anti-London charge? They've said that oh, uh, London's jam-packed full of um, snowflake wokies and you know uh, frothing at the mouth remainers, etc. And as a result, I think quite naturally Londoners have felt threatened by that and have sought to redress this perception of the country. The problem is that the right-wing culture warriors and what they say about London. That's not representative at all, in my view, um, and I think the polling bears this out, in what ordinary people um, in other parts of the country think about the capital. And so I think basically um, most people just want a semblance of equality. They want resources to be more equally shared. They want um, there not to be a brain drain down to the capital every year. And they want the state to tackle regional inequalities rather than entrenching them through, you know, government um, investment in transport transport infrastructure in London, for example, which, uh, you know, as as we both know, is far outweighed um, infrastructure investment anywhere else in recent years. Um, So I think, in effect, this has created a system whereby otherwise progressive liberal people who are deeply concerned about inequality end up defending London very instinctively. And that therefore means that they're not challenging the basis of regional inequality. They're um, essentially rowing in behind a city that um, you know, is, is the oligarch haven, is the site of high finance. It sort of represents all these things that the left stands opposed to. But because it's continually under attack by right-wing culture warriors, it feels as though it has to retreat into its fortress and um, and stick up for London when that's I think ultimately deeply um, um, corrosive to regional inequality.
2: Now, one of the sort of structural issues underpinning regional inequality, as as you put it, is education. And you spend a lot of time dwelling on education in in your book. You describe your own uh, educational background in in Huddersfield, and also talking about London, you describe the the London challenge that helped schools in the capital improved dramatically so i mean just briefly how, how did how did that work and do you think is that the solution to how we can bridge some of these gaps in educational attainment that that we that we see in the north of england
1: yeah so the london challenge i think has got to be an example of one of the few really good government policies of the past 20 years a sort of unadulterated success Um, So basically, it was led by Tim Brighouse, who I interviewed at length for the book. Um, And Tim essentially created the system whereby schools that share characteristics um, would form partnerships to learn from one another. So typically, you'd have a group of schools and you try and pair a really successful school that, say, had a large number of ethnic minority students with You know, peer schools that shared those characteristics but weren't as successful, and you engendered a system whereby they could share data, they could share learnings, teaching practices, but you weren't imposing on a top-down basis from the state exactly what these schools should do. Which I think had had a had a great merit in the fact that it allowed this policy to survive changes in the Department for Education. So it. It allowed it meant that the government wasn't because the government wasn't instructing schools what to believe, it meant that when a new education secretary turned up, they couldn't object to the previous policy because all that the Department for Education was doing was saying to schools get together and share what works and you know find common ground really um, and I think on top of that, you obviously had you had massive both rhetorical and actual investment from the government from the the new labor government's in education you know we all know the three the three line slogan of of the blair years education 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 so you had this i think real and um, concerted effort from the government to help schools both in terms of funding and in terms of knowledge sharing that proved to be immense uh, immensely effective i mean London schools went from the runt of the litter, the back of the pack, to being now comfortably better than schools elsewhere. I mean, just one statistic very briefly, um, you're twice as likely to go to university if you're on free school meals in the capital than if you're on free school meals in the north. I mean, that is a massive disparity, which London has managed to open up actually in a relatively short period of time.
2: An idea that you put forward in the in the book is that to help people uh, that you know the Westminster elites, uh, the people who make the decisions, understand what it's like to live outside London, that Parliament should be moved, not just temporarily but permanently to Leeds. Uh, which I think you know a lot of people would probably support that idea. And obviously, there was a a year or two ago a bit of a, a suggestion that part of Parliament might move to York on a temporary basis so what's 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 your thinking behind parliament coming to lead why would that how would that help
1: well i sort of looked at the model of germany um which you know is by no means ideal it has its own regional problems as we know east versus west Um, but the way in which germany has incubated pockets of heat by distributing the national assets i think is really instructive so obviously you have frankfurt is the financial hub you've got berlin which is sort of cultural political center like Dortmund and some of those former industrial areas um, in the west of the country. And so the question is, for me, how exactly do we redistribute some of these centres of national power to somewhere else? And if you think about it pragmatically, we're not going to outsource Canary Wharf to Leeds anytime soon, though I would love to see it. The banks are just far too slippery they're far too clever. They will get around any sort of regulations that you try to put in place. They will probably move abroad, quite frankly. So one of the few things that we can actually get our hands on is, is the site of politics, is the site of power. And I think it would have a dual effect. It would be symbolically, I think, really powerful to show that Parliament's moving out of London. It's coming closer um, to the nations and regions, which I think would have a would have an effect on on commerce and the economy for one. But it would also cause a vast number of people, journalists, civil servants, outsourcing firms that rely heavily on government contracts to move to a different part of the country. And so I think you'd create, I mean, you'd obviously try to avoid creating another uh, London-esque housing crisis in Leeds, for example. So you try and stagger, you try and stagger the move and you try and push for a mass house building program in in whichever city you chose prior to the move being made, but I think it would really create a new center of economic and political power in the country that would then signal that, you know, this this is possible. And, you know, it may be hopelessly unrealistic, but I'm sorry to say that it's probably one of the, f- the few realistic options that we have right now that I think could make sort of a, that could produce a big bang moment for regional equality in a, in a relatively short period of time.
2: Now, I think if we were to have Michael Gove here or Boris Johnson, they would say, "Well, we we you know we agree with a lot of this, uh, a lot of this thinking, a lot of the arguments that you're you're making about how we got to this position." But they would say that you know we're we're already tackling this. We've got a Leveling Up White Paper. We've spent billions of pounds in different parts of the, the country on on the Leveling Up agenda. I mean, what do you think of the current efforts that are being made to tackle? regional inequality do, do you think everyone in government who needs to be behind it is
1: is behind it um no i mean i hate to agree with sort of the consensus on those things but i have to say on this i probably do that that it's for rhetoric only really it's um it is a political ploy above and beyond anything else um I mean, there was some really interesting research, which I'm sure you reported on after the white paper coming out. The Institute for Government, for example, saying that the overwhelming majority of the government's levelling up missions are not realistic, that they, they just they just won't be achieved by 2030. Um, the National Audit Office produced a report that basically said that the way in which the government's attempting, attempting to spend money, so on flagship, shiny projects like... Um, new platforms for railway stations for example that these sort of investments uh, don't really generate economic growth um and so it's not just commentators saying this like myself but also sort of reputable um you know uh, organizations in the know that point out that the government has you know deployed um a lot of um, fancy words in you know typical Boris Johnson fashion to this mission, but actually, in terms of substance, I say it, it for, I would say it falls substantially short. I mean, I, I, one thing that really struck me was reporting from the Northern Powerhouse Partnership that pointed out that in actual fact, based on the government's plans, Boris Johnson plans on spending less on regional uh, English regional development than Theresa May or David Cameron. So he's actually going going backwards compared to previous administrations when what we need is a massive surge um, in investment to make this work. So with all that being the case,
2: how optimistic are you that things are ever going to change? Do do you foresee a time when someone like yourself from Huddersfield doesn't have to go to London to make a success of their career as as you have?
1: I'm not very (laughs) optimistic, I'm afraid. I think that... To be optimistic would probably to, would be to downplay um, and potentially belittle the scale of the task, which I think is, is huge. If we look at East and West Germany, for example, um, and I think the Centre for Cities has done a report off the back of this, it took €2 trillion um, euros of investment from Germany to even begin to reverse those seismic gaps between East and West. Um, and that's twice our annual GDP. Um, so we saw, you know, the government is talking in billions of pounds, but the scale actually needs to be um, 10 or 100 times bigger, not just a multiple of two or three, but really significantly bigger. If we're going to do it in terms of infrastructure investment and taxation and you know, trying to move pockets of economic heat, then it's going to take a, it's going to take a phenomenal amount of investment. Uh, like I say, I think that the government should try and do it a bit more smartly and think how it can, it can combine its symbolism with actually something practical by moving parliament and then uh, not have to spend quite as much government money, £2 trillion, but you know would entice businesses of their own accord to think, well, the government's moving up north, it's moving its size of political power up north, maybe we'll follow it. Um, which I think is a is a far more uh, is a far more sane strategy, but not one probably that the that um, the former mayor of London Boris Johnson thinks is a good idea. Sam Bright, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Deirdre.
2: Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast, and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at the Northern Agenda. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons and Dan O'Donoghue and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify.